a voice sweet like a butterfly, a tongue that stings like a honeybee, your sister love extraordinaire, a.k.a. Red Sonia, the song bee. Welcome to another episode of Sister Love Untethered and Under the Radar podcast. You can support this podcast by hitting the share button, subscribe, and leave a five-star rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or Google Play. You can also make a donation by visiting Patreon forward slash Sister Love. Leave a comment on Facebook Sister Love Extraordinaire page. Tell us your pH level for the week. And check out the H3 blog, that's Humor, Health, Happiness, at h3life.blogspot.com. So, let's get this thing rocking. My guest for the week is Miss Sasha Jackson, MSW, ASW. She's a therapist, mental health clinician. She's beautiful, young, and passionate about promoting mental wellness. Her motto is, it's time to empower yourself. All right, so we're going to get this thing going with Miss Sasha Jackson. Hello, Sasha. Hey. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Glad to have you. Welcome to Sister Love. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So, um, usually, on I like to start out, I'm going to ask you, we do a little thing called the Pursuit of Happiness, and the Pursuit of Happiness is uh, health and happiness, I call it P-squared, and uh, on a, your, it's measurement of your pH level from 1 to 5, like 5 being most positive, and, and then stating what impacted your pH factor for the week. And it's a challenge that I send out to the to listeners to always be mindful about doing something dedicated to raising their uh, P-square factor. So, for example, my P-square factor this week, I'd say, is a 4. And what was the, or the pH level was a 4. My pH factor, meaning what maybe influenced it on a positive side. There's been a lot of bad news. And I would say my uh, pH factor is up a bit because I, one day this week, and I try to make it a more of a habit, but I had to, I felt a little overwhelmed and I stopped before I left the house that morning, took a moment to just have a quiet time for meditation. And, and then I also uh, dedicated some time to get a massage. So that helps to raise my pH level for my pursuit of health and happiness. So I'm going to ask our guest, Sasha Jackson, MSWASW. We'll get into that in a minute. So Sasha, what's your uh, your P-squared factor? So I would say my pH level would be a 4 as well, or maybe a 4.5. Okay. Um, I started to incorporate more meditation and mindfulness in my week as well, which I noticed um, just helps out overall. I deal with a lot of the therapists and kind of taking on people's energy and helping them work through those things. Yes. So it's important that I take the time as well to just regenerate myself and give myself a space um, to just be well and 
calm. And so I started to incorporate that into some of my therapy sessions with my clients too. Um, just kind of make sure that they insert some of that meditation um, and happiness in their lives as well. So, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. That's good. Okay. Well, that's a positive way to start out the day, you know, and hoping everybody can do something to always uplift and impact their pH level and in that pursuit of health and happiness. So thanks so much for joining us. How was your week this week? Um, my week was well. Um, I'm currently working on a book, so just oh. formatting that and um, doing everything I can to that's excellent I love to hear that I love to hear other aspiring authors uh, I'm an aspiring author I although I did self-publish a, a poetry book uh, very very few I mean like a hundred but um, so do you have a title for your book and what's the genre yes yeah, so it is going to be a self-help or self-awareness book. Yes. Plug into your power. Mm. Um, yes, and I'm co-authoring that with one of my good friends um, that I've known over for 10 years. So it's basically a guide, a workbook to help people reboot their mind, body, and soul. Oh, I love it. A better place. Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful name. I love that. Plug into your power. Yes. Oh, excellent. That's wonderful. Well, once it's published, we'll have to talk again. We'll have to get you on and, and um, promote the book and go into it a little bit. Yeah, that would be nice. Yes. So tell me something. Um, so I just, I'm, I'm going to go into just a little bit. Tell us uh, for our audience that's listening what an MSW is and what that means behind the title. So you're basically, so we were talking about therapists dealing with people, mental and emotional states. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow. It's so needed today. Well, on that note, um, I, I, I have to speak about the elephant in the room. <laughs> so I think since the last couple of days that you and I talked um, a few days ago, a lot has happened and I'll just give a quick rundown. So I'm going to go back to uh, August or excuse me, July 28th. It was a shooting at the Garlic Festival. Four persons were killed there. Then on August 3rd, 20 people killed in El Paso. And then almost less than 24 hours, August 4th, nine people massacred in Dayton. Um, now, these are clearly planned attacks. But what is this saying about the mind and emotions of people and how... Uh, their ideology of hate is influencing the mental uh, ability for people to even have a level of tolerance. We're in a crisis in America. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, sorry, go ahead. 
No, no, no. I just wanted to get your input. I mean, you know, from um, someone who's in a field of mental health, I mean, that's that's extreme. But uh, when people are so volatile, I mean, what do you think would be the remedy for people that are influenced emotional and mentally with such extreme hate and a lack of tolerance? our times and with the mass shootings are correlating that with mental health. And I think there's so many things beyond that that we're not seeing just to blame it as a mental health issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, those people who are committing these mass murders, murders are dealing with a lot, and it is a mental health issue, but I don't, I don't know if it's a mental health um, diagnosis. And I think that's a different thing because we all have to have mental wellness and being able to be okay and happy and healthy. Um, but that doesn't necessarily do something bad. It's a, a diagnosable uh, mental illness that we can attribute all their actions to. Hmm. Wow. So do you think that um, because the American, I mean, in general, the public, you know, we don't really have, is there, should we have empathy for persons who who create or do such things like this? Yeah, I think we all should have empathy. It's important to understand what is going on, and I think, you know, it's hard to connect every shooting to, um, to one certain source, but there's something that's going on. It's a common thread that people are feeling that they're not heard, or it's something within themselves that they're not happy, that then they're um, lashing out onto the public. So I, I think it is, it's, a, it's a public health concern because it's not just happening in one place. It's not an isolated event. And it's reoccurring more often. And so I think it's important that we figure out what is happening with our youth um, that are committing these crimes and just in general why people have gotten to the state where they're no longer tolerating um, being uncomfortable or being unhappy, and that they're lashing out, not only killing innocent people, but they're killing themselves as well. Right. It's very, it's very, um, I guess there's so many levels to it, particularly when, um, you know, a, you can look at another person because there's a, a difference and they're not a part of your village or your tribe or whatever that is. And then there's an ideology of, of hate and there are, you know, there are a variety of negative influences that are influencing the minds of people. Uh, and of course, you know, uh, we have our most powerful leader, <laughs> fearless leader that apparently is feeding into the subconscious, not even the subconscious, the conscious and certain ideologies that people are acting out And this is what, you know, the public is talking about and, you know, you hear it in the news media and you just uh, wonder, we are in a crisis in America. Yes, I agree, especially with that point, as you said, um, with ideology. Um, Our belief system, your belief system, my belief system definitely is a driving force um, of our actions and our emotions. And so it is important to figure out what type of belief system are we um, putting out to the public and how is that belief system then impacting people's emotional stability and then producing these type of heinous actions that we're seeing now. It certainly is creating a lot of fear. I mean, I think that, um, 
You know, I think that in general, in the overwhelming majority, uh, you know, the consensus is that we're not going to stop doing things because or going places or live live in a state of fear or not fly places. We saw that with, uh, you know, certain terrorist attacks, you know, and uh, uh, the American public responded with fear, with concern. And that concern, we identified that fear came along when people had a certain look about themselves. What do you think about uh, what happens in the minds of people when we attach uh, harm and terror with, and we see it everywhere with a certain look? Uh, that happened with, particularly with, let's say, people that had a, uh, a Middle Eastern look or if they were uh, clearly, you know, looked like they were Muslim or they dressed a certain way. What do you call that when people have that type of identity and they react uh, negatively? It's kind of stereotyping, I guess. Yeah, it is stereotyping. And it is hard to kind of live in a space when we are fear, uh, when we have a lot of fear about something or we're fearful of going to the store, fearful of going to a festival, fearful just kind of live our everyday life. Um, But I think What's different about what's going on now is that the fear is not attached to any person in particular as it was, you know, um, as it was before when we had those terrorist attacks. Now the fear is someone that you might pass in the store. You don't even know that they have the intention to harm you. Um, So I think that's what makes it scarier this time around is that we are not, we are the fears not identified with this particular person or um, something that we can discriminate against or stereotype. It's just um, now we're just fearful of someone's mind, but you can't see what that is. <laughs> you know, you can't see their intentions um, when you're walking with them or, or walking across the street or anything like that. Right. Particularly when you don't know a person's attention. But just think about the things that have happened in the last. In the last week in America with the mass shootings, and I, I believe that in at least two or three of the two of those incidents, I think maybe uh, four more children uh, under the age of 12 uh, lost their lives. So what would you say to a child uh, if you have children? I mean, what and they have uh, now they're watching the news and they're having fear about doing things and going place and a lack of trust. How would you approach this and what kind of conversation would you recommend having? Well, that's that's a tricky one because it's hard to say don't be fearful when there's so many things that are unpredictable. Yes. But I would say to have an open conversation with their parent or their caregiver or trusted adult or peer. Um, because these are real-life conversations that there is no right or wrong answer. Uh, we mm. don't want to create a space where we're, you know, hyper-vigilant and we think something's always going to go wrong. Right. Unfortunately, we can't create a space where we just have this ideal, ideal that nothing's going to happen because um, these experiences have shown that they are unpredictable. So I would just have a, a, a conversation and talk about the fears and, Creating a safety plan within your family, uh, something that we can do, or how can we protect ourselves, and um, just being aware of our surroundings. And, and, and I think that's all we can do at this time is, like I said, it's no right or wrong answer, and it's hard to say this is exactly what a child should do or not do. 
you just said something very important, and I think that uh, this is important for everyone, adult and youth, to be mindful, have a safety plan. We think about that when we live in California, that, you know, hey, this is earthquake country. And you don't know, we can't predict when earthquakes are coming. And there's a an alarm system, I think, that happens, that can possibly happen, or they're working on an alert system that is that will happen within 60 seconds or maybe a minute, not more than a minute's notice. But for the most part, most of us won't ever get that. And maybe eventually they'll have the technology and we'll get it on the cell phone. But what good will it do if you don't have a, a planned system, right? Mm-hmm. So it makes yeah. it makes sense now that we're seeing more uh, uh, incidents of mass shootings. This is a major concern. And I think that uh, most of us, for the most part, our, it should heighten our awareness, but what's our plan of action and how will we react? You have to think quickly, you know, whatever environment you're in. That means before you're going into a place that are so-called soft targets, whether it be, be it a store or a church, you have to think quickly. And it's, it's terrible we have to, you know, be in this mindset, but what if, what would I do? And so plan of action before going, before participating you know, look around, be mindful, and and just know what are the exits, what are good safety zones to duck or to hide or to escape. Uh, wow, it's like li- living in a dystopia. <laughs> you know, uh, we're in the West and we're in America and so many people want to be here. And But look at the things that are happening that's uh, amongst civilians. Yeah. It's scary. So with that... Um, you know, I, I also, I, I would not hesitate to mention uh, some of the things that have happened in uh, the past. On August 2nd, Sayorsi Kennedy Hill, sad to say, and announced uh, that the granddaughter of Robert F. Kennedy, uh, our um, beloved uh, president with uh, such a good legacy, and that family, that poor family, but she was found dead at 22, and that apparently she had wrote an opinion piece for her student newspaper about her struggles with depression. Now, I haven't heard any more about it, but it sounds as if uh, it's implied that she may have taken her life. Sad to say. And which means that there's... um, We're also seeing, you know, states of depression with youth and there's different things influencing that there's from social media so all sorts of things um do you you know in your practice uh you deal with adults and youth yes i do yeah so are you seeing a lot of youth in crises
um, to take care of themselves and be happy or healthy or safe. That must be very challenging with foster care, you know, and people that have gone. I've, I've uh, had, uh, maybe did not, I wasn't counseling, but I used to uh, give workshops on financial literacy or, let's say, how to become empowered through entrepreneurship. And um, I've been asked to speak to a group of youth coming out of foster care. And, and on one-on-one counseling, I, I found that uh, before they can take certain, embark upon certain uh, marks in their lives or let's say be at college or getting uh, their own place eventually because they're emancipated minors, they still carry a lot of uh, luggage from their past. Do you continue to work with people um, after certain ages? Um, so yeah, like I said, so all of my clients that I deal with they're already out of the foster care system. Okay. But it's, it's, yeah, extended foster care use. So um, even though they have um, special, well, not special, we have different laws of extended care of foster use just to continue to help them out. That's between the ages of 18 to 21. Mm-hmm. But of course, I see them after 21 if they're still involved with mental health. Well, so it, it sounds like, I wonder if uh, they're the state of the social situation where we are today um, in the U.S., if since we're seeing a rise of suicide amongst youth, you know, and um, do you think, uh, what do you think some of these, uh, the attributions to that or what contributes to it? Uh, now, I, I know that there's a certain amount of social media that may contribute to uh, some of the states of depression what do you what would you say some of the i mean i don't know if you can generalize but some of the top four five or three reasons that uh young people are having crises so from the yeah i don't want to generalize everyone but just from the population that i work with Mm -hmm. um one of the top ones i would say is just kind of having a disconnect from society Mm. Um, not really feeling like they have that social support or genuine social support. That doesn't necessarily mean their peers, but that can be family, um, just in, in general, not feeling like they have anyone that they can talk to and who's going to accept them um, for them. Mm-hmm. Um, a second one I would see is just their inability to regulate their own emotions and that's something that's taught to you that's taught to you by your parents and that was taught to them by their parents and so if you don't know how to regulate your emotions and what that means is to be able just to cope and manage and process everyday emotions and everyday experiences Mm. um it's not necessarily attributing them to a deficit that you think that you have Mm -hmm. um that's that's a big thing um because I can see that a lot of our youth are, well, the ones that I deal with, are not able to tolerate um, not perfectionism. We kind of live in a time where you have to have everything together. You have to own your home and have this money and be perceived as perfect and have all these things. And so when things are not right or things go wrong, um, the inability to tolerate that is is not there. Their tolerance is really low. Hmm. Um, And then... I think those are the top two, I would say. Mm-hmm. And I see that kind of drive people or um, some of the youth that I deal with um, having suicide ideations or suicide attempts. 
Mm, yes. Um, and they, so they have a history of trauma, too, that definitely can be an added factor of um, just what is going on with them. Wow. You know, um, my last uh, recording was a solo cast. And I, oh, by the way, uh, for listeners, I call this is a sister's extraordinaire because we've got two extraordinary ladies, okay, with Miss Sasha Jackson. So, uh, but my last um, podcast was a solo cast. And I talked about uh, one of the things I brought up. There's a, 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 a lady at the age of 37, she took her life. I, I met her. And um, it was, it's just, um, she's left this ch- trail of shock because her friends and people that knew her, you know, it's, it's just hard to um, just imagine. Now, they knew that she was bipolar and she had, uh, you know, she was clinical and she was on medication. But clearly, and this is someone, sometimes what you have, uh, doesn't mean everything. She had, um, she was well off. She was definitely than the average person. She was wealthy, you know, and uh, had a wealthy inheritance. But that wasn't enough to overcome her health conditions or keep her in states of happiness. Uh, bipolar, maybe you could explain a little bit what that is, but apparently she had extreme mood swings. And about a month ago, she just ended it. No one had a clue. Mm-hmm. People have heard of that, but I sometimes that term is used loosely. Yes. Um, so bipolar disorder, you have bipolar disorder one and two. Um, bipolar disorder two is defined by someone who has hypomanic symptoms as well as depressive symptoms, and then bipolar disorder one is someone who has manic symptoms and mm. depressive symptoms. And so the manic or hypomanic are elevated moods. Um, it could be happy, it could be angry, it could be um, a sense of grandiosity, um, rapid speech, um, dysregulated sleep where you're not sleeping, and then the other part is our depression, um, which is low mood, um, depressed thoughts, suicide ideation, um, low energy fatigue, maybe not eating. Um, not moving, just kind of in a slump. So there's a, there's two different moods. Wow. So with meditation, um, can help that chemical imbalance so someone can get more on a stable level. Um, but with medication, and I think doesn't help people find that happiness, which you were talking about. And I, I see that as one of those factors that even though you might get that mental health treatment mm-hmm. um, for um, medication, I really believe that talk therapy and psychotherapy is important to help people identify what it is to help them be happy. Um, that just that sense of happiness propels you and wants and makes you find a bigger picture of life and that you want to live life. So if someone's not happy, um, despite how much money that they have or how many people or friends that they have, if they just don't find that genuine happiness within themselves, that is a big um, precipitating an event for someone to feel like they need to self-harm or even commit um, suicide. Right. So to create, let's say, someone that uh, has one of those conditions, to create some type of balance, uh, so you suggest, so let's say they're on medication, so they're seeing 
a, a, a physician, a doctor, a specialist, but therapy as yeah. well. And are there any other things that you would recommend? And, and if this is a friend of yours, let's say if you're around someone, whether it's a friend or a family member, are there certain things that you should look for or, or how should you approach it? Just to be people around, you need to have a healthy approach about it as well. Yeah, so, yes, going to a psychiatrist and always being seen by a physician, I think that's number one. Um, having a therapist would be number two, so you can have someone who um, can help talk to you and doesn't have a stigma about what's going on, and you can just feel like that's an ally with you in your recovery, um, as well as finding social support within your life. Um, I think that's very important, and when people feel isolated or feel like they're disconnected, that creates another void. So identifying people in your life that can be that social support for you. Mm-hmm. And then the last one I would say is, is not holding a lot of judgment or stigma. I think holding judgment and stigma prevents people from even thinking mental health uh, because they feel like there's something wrong. Right. I always tell my clients that if you broke your arm, you would not hesitate to go to the doctors. You wouldn't care about that cast. Um, you would go through those um, proper you know, procedures to get your arm back into the condition that it was, or if it can't get to that condition, um, good enough so you can use it again. And that's how what we have to do with our minds, to not let um, media or the stigma of having mental health deter you from getting the help that you need. You've got to go to the doctor. you got to get that cast on it, or, you know, you got to get go to that physical um therapy and do the things that you need to do to get your mind back to where it should be or to the state where you can function and be happy and healthy and safe. Mm-hmm. So here's a couple of facts that I, I came up uh, according to the National Alliance on Mental Illness. That one out of five uh, United States adults or adults in the United States experiences a mental health issue each year. One out of five, that's really high. And then they also indicate that over 44 American adults have a mental health condition. Uh, So with that in mind, but if one in five Americans, and I think about some of the issues that we've seen uh, that's been publicized in media, particularly um, mass uh, killings or approach, but then there's so many other things that we don't, know about uh, that deal with uh, maybe one-on-one or domestic violence or different things, but there's underlying issues. And there's certainly when it comes to, let's say, meeting someone new or dating, I feel like I have to be super, super cautious. How can you get to know someone, you know, and not know uh, much about their background or just wonder if they're okay mentally? you would have to talk to people about not saying, oh, hey, how's your mental health? <laughs> I know. You'd like to do that, but <laughs> they're, yeah. not they're going to be honest anyway. Exactly. So I think it's just a conversation and being aware of your own red flags and your own boundaries and just trusting yourself and your gut and your intuition on when you're seeking different partners out and um, just figuring out what it is and kind of conversations you guys need to talk about so you can get more clarity on their mental health. Mm-hmm. And I think in order to do that, you have to have a good um, kind of foundation of your own mental health. And 
some of your own things that you go through so you can have a clear perspective on how to understand someone else. If you're not aware of your own um, issues, and these issues don't have to be negative, but just how your own mind works, um, it's going to be hard for you to decipher if someone else has a negative mindset or if their mental health is a little bit um, worse. And when I say mental health, I definitely don't only mean the um, diagnosis, but I just mean in mental health in general, just how our mind works and how we do things and how we perceive things in life. Mm-hmm. You know, I had this hairdresser and he, and he was always, I would say, philosophizing because I'd sit in his chair and he always goes, Sonia, you know, there's a lot of people with poor mental health. And he used to say it all the time because he always had a story to tell. And at the end of the story, it was always based on the behavior. It would always really describe some extreme behavior uh, of someone. And I think sometimes I joke with male friends but I say to them, you know, you guys, you take it for granted that because someone looks good to you on the outside, you think everything's okay. And I find that men jump to conclusions just based on how the appearance looks on the outside, and they never take time to get to know the woman. And then all of a sudden they end up in a relationship, and it hasn't been maybe two or three months, and they start complaining about uh, strange and bizarre and extreme behavior. And I always tell them, you guys need to take time. You guys are too quick. And again, like that, that's a good point, Sasha, about knowing. It's really about knowing yourself and balancing your own mental health because how can you be aware of yellow and red flags? Mm-hmm. You, you know, we know the red flags because clearly either there's something that offended us or that's, you know, clearly not normal behavior. But then there's yellow flags. And a lot of times I think that uh, particularly sometimes women in relationship or anyone in a relationship sometimes see things because you're attracted to a person and the yellow flags, well, you let it go and you let this go and you let go. I think that we might need to, we take taps, you know, and we'll keep track of things. But it's like when you ha- knowing when, okay, enough is enough or this is a little too stream or my tolerance level says this is not healthy for me. Sometimes, do you ever find yourself in dealing with, let's say, uh, or speaking with a client, uh, and I'm just going to say in this case, a woman, and I'm going to ask you, do you see a difference between male and female issues or similarities? Um, I do see, I, the first difference I would see is that I do see more women coming to therapy to deal with more emotional um, mental health or um, mental wellness issues such as like depression or experiencing trauma where I see more men come in for more psychological. Well, that will be like schizophrenia or um, bipolar disorder hmm. um, and, and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, let me ask you a question. Do you think that the women, are these women doing it or the, or the men, uh, are the men doing it because it's prescribed or is it self-prescribed? Whereas with women, uh, maybe a woman may say, you know, I need help. Do you, do you think that these are like things that they're recognizing by themselves or something that's being directed by someone else? Well, I think it's kind of hard to say definitely. Mm-hmm. Let's say um, just women are more kind of groomed to be in touch with their feelings and, you know, to, if you're feeling something, go 
to go to therapy because it's um, social, um, socially normed. Yes. As men, they have to break down that barrier to get the help that they need. And not to say that they don't need help, you just don't see as many men there just because of the social norms and the gender norms that we have. But I encourage men and women to get mental health because it's important. Just because you're a man doesn't mean that your mental health um, is less important or um, needed to be attended to as a, as a woman. But that's just what I see from the people that I deal with. I, I deal with more women because they're more, um, it's more encouraged for women to go to therapy and work out their feelings. Mm-hmm. Now, of, of the clients that you see, do you have uh, a, a broad or diverse client base? Or is it, you know, do you have more any specific religion, group, or ethnic makeup? No, I, I have a really diverse um, client base. So mm-hmm. I see Caucasian clients, um, African American, mm-hmm. Hispanic, um, Asian American. So mm-hmm. I pretty much have a, a diverse client base. Mm-hmm. Now, are you aware of the uh, the uh, cultural stigmas behind seeking professional help or therapy? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I have some clients who were Asian American, especially if their parents were, um, like if they were first generation, but their parents were not, mm-hmm. um, that they would have more of a stigma about having mental health and counseling, not, you know, that this is something that is usually not normed in their culture. Mm. So coming here, a lot of the counseling or just their progress in counseling would be invalidated. And so kind of coming from a, um, an environment that's invalidating and then coming to counseling, then that would create a disconnect in our treatment. So I have seen how sometimes culture can definitely go against what someone's trying to do to help their mental health. Wow. So it's so it's pretty high with uh, Asian cultures? Um, I wouldn't say, I would, again, I don't want to generalize it, but just some of the clients that I have seen, I know that was um, the issue that was going on with them in their home. Hmm. So as an African-American, you know, I know that coming up, it was always a a stigma. Uh, You never talked about, uh, you know, someone's mental health in a family. They they just avoided it culturally. And I know that uh, today I often speak on it, you know, because I'm aware of it. I'm an adult now. But as a child, it's like it's amazing how so much was swept under the carpet when those individuals in our family needed help. And it just wasn't talked about. They didn't pursue it. You know, we just dealt with the dysfunctionality, you know, of of that member. Yeah. Um, So I don't have that exact experience. And maybe because I know uh, my generation is a little bit different Mm -hmm. than the clients that I deal with. They are coming kind of straight from foster care, so they've oh, yeah. been kind of inundated with mental health treatment and, and what that is. Yes. Um, and I can even say a lot of my peers and uh, my friends, a lot of them are therapists or kind of um, deal with mental health. So it hasn't been yet uh, such a hush-hush with um, the, the black population that I see mm-hmm. um, in my practices or with my peers. Well, yeah, I think it's it's a lot different today, but I just know as a child, um, you know, the older generations and anyone that's in my my uh age group, the upper uh uh X 
lower, what is it, lower boomers and higher X. There's a little area in there. Anyway, but uh, our uh, elders, you know, and, and, you know, it was something that people just didn't talk about or didn't do. And I, you know, ask questions as a kid. And today it's funny, I can speak to my aunt and, uh, and we could talk about this and say, wow, you know, all these people in, in the family, like uncle so-and-so, great uncles that needed uh, help. And it wasn't something that was culturally embraced. And I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of factors that contribute to that. But anyway, I thought, uh, here's another fact that I thought was really, uh, as it pertains to the workforce. Now, since you're dealing with um, a certain demographics, uh, and I, I'm assuming that they're they're young because they're like what 24, 25. What what would you say the average age of your client or your patients are, or your clients? So I work in yeah, I work in two capacities. I work for the county, and mm-hmm. that would be my clients who are 18 to 25. And then I work in a private practice. So that age range is from little kids to older adults. Um, what would be the medium you think? Okay. Early 30 to late 30s. So kind of that 30 to 40 range. Yes. What I see in private practice. Okay. So that means there's a good deal of people that are definitely in the workforce, um, you know, that are working. And uh, I this is something that comes up or that has come up over the years. But we see what uh, the, and I'm, again, I'm stereotyping because it's a cliche, but postal syndromes, where people uh, take out a certain form of aggression and that they're either holding a lot of frustration, and I'm sure in their personal life, but then there's the work life that we spend more than, you know, eight hours in our lives. So, over a, a year or a lifetime or whatever, that's a, you're, you're almost married to your job. So for people who are maybe undergoing pressures and uh, unhappiness in the workplace, do you have um, any you know any amount of your clients that talk about their workplace? Yeah, so I do. I've had a client whose work environment was definitely connected to her mental wellness and her overall mental health mm-hmm. and not feeling in her work she was validated or treated as an individual or had that space let's mm-hmm. be okay without someone micromanaging her or demoralizing her or just not considering her home life as a factor of why she might feel this way or why her energy level might be low and so to continuously go into a workplace in a work um, in the workforce and not having a good experience definitely um, impacted her depression as well as anxiety. And so within treatment, we, we talked about that. As in, um, you have a space to um, take a space from working and just kind of getting back to yourself in or do you have a, a place that you can look for another job where your skills can be um, transferable? And so just kind of figuring out how we can help her. Yes. Make her, um, all of her environments conducive with her wellness and just her overall health. Wow, that's a big uh, issue with so many people. I mean, today you have a lot of people that feel, uh, well, if you're on the younger uh, spectrum of, of working age, 
you know, they say that customarily you'll see uh, a lot of uh, millennials not staying on jobs very long. Whereas if you're on the upper end and more mature in your early 40s and, and up, uh, people feel a little more stuck in their workplaces that they don't jump around as much. So uh, there's uh, a lot, a high level of people that are not happy in the workplace. In fact, I think it was something that happened at a Walmart. I hate to mention it, another shooting. Uh, it's not talked about as much because these other shootings uh, that occurred recently, you know, in early August and late July have uh, really because more people were injured. But there was a place, uh, I believe it was, um, I don't want to say it was Walmart. It may have been, but it was a retail store. A uh, guy worked there, and he was uh, released from the job, or, or his position was terminated, and he went back, and he shot several people uh, at the workplace. So, I mean, clearly, you know, there's uh, <laughs> that a level of happiness is definitely attached to uh, how a person feels about themselves, their well-being, and the workplace. But if there's... Uh, Let's say you have someone that feels bullied, bullied in the workplace, but they, they stay there and they tolerate it. Obviously, something has to change or depending on the person, they get, you know, pushed, you know, to a point that they react in a way that's not healthy. Um, how can a person identify, I mean, when they're, they're breaking point and they need to make a change? What are the clues? Work this out until I can move my job or, or do what I need to 
Mm-hmm. Wow. So many people need to come to you. <laughs> really. Um, so, and it's so, it's so much, you know, I think a lot of this has to do with self-awareness too. You know, pain, you know, being in tune to what's going on in with your emotions, what's going on with your mind. The other thing that's... Uh, that's not talked about much, but I really believe that there's a certain amount of physical exertion through uh, activities such as yoga or exercise and incorporating some type of routine that triggers and releases certain chemicals uh, in our body to help create, bring these balances along with the other tools uh, that we can incorporate in our lives to just have a balance of wellness, you know, and that it impacts our mental well-being. Now, for people who are, because I know people that are maybe uh, dealing with some type of physical challenge or illness or pain, and so physically uh, they feel that certain things hurt, I can't do this, I can't, can't do that, I still think that even through that, they, if they could find something that works for them, even if it's in the pool or some type of uh, therapy in some way, I think physical activity, would you agree that uh, it's important to incorporate some type of physical activity? Yeah, I definitely think so. Mm -hmm. And I think you kind of bring up the the first point you said was when people think that they can't because of the physical um, maybe limitations. And of course, listen to, you know, your body that something hurts, don't do it. And uh, whatever restrictions that you have to do any physical um, exercise. However, just being aware of what you tell yourself, being aware of the narrative that you tell yourself and what you can and you cannot do, and how does that contribute to your overall happiness? If you feel like you can't go for a walk, does that then make you feel sad or upset and bring you to a lower place? And so if you just kind of keep in track of your mental wellness and the connection it has to your body. Mm-hmm. And pushing yourself, you know, to the limit, I mean, not to the limit, because there's so many ones to hurt themselves out there, but pushing yourself to get to that happiness. If going to the walk, is in, if going on a walk makes you happy, if going swimming makes you happy, if going out um, to the gym just to walk on the treadmill for, like, um, the lowest ever um, scale there, just do that. Just being mindful on how you need to have that, that balance. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not physically, but mentally as well to get you to that place of happiness. Right. You know, I, I I play all kind of games with myself, but one of the things is like I I I used to travel. I don't travel as much as I'd like to, but I think that if we can create our own mini uh, utopia retreat. And to do it in our homes or do it, you know, for uh, a day that you go out, just create it, you know, in, in yourself. And you create that space, even in your home, create that space. Now, for people that maybe have children or live with other people, you still need that dedicated space to be alone and create that uh, retreat for yourself. You know, if it's four hours or if it's 12 hours, or a day, or a weekend, however you can do it, I think it's important that we afford ourselves that that space. And when we don't get that mental retreat, you know, and physical retreat, just balance it, 
that there's an impact, you know, and, and our tolerance level just goes down a bit. And we, you know, find ourselves irritated and mad and angry and unhappy and all those negative things come in. So I think that's one of the reasons why I create that uh, uh, P-squared factor, you know, to purposely, deliberately create this space and time that you do something that's good for yourself. Because the world, I mean, you know, it's the world isn't always so friendly and it's not always so lovingly. You can wake up, hello sunshine, <laughs> and walk out there and feel wonderful and all of a sudden a car comes and cuts you off, you know. Okay. And you didn't see it coming. But this guy, maybe they were hostile and rude and it just caught you off guard. It can really throw a person off. So let's say when, so how do you suggest people, let's say, even if it's in the workplace and there's somebody that's making your life miserable in the workplace and they happen to have uh, rank over you, how do you, how would you recommend that they deal with that situation? So I think the first thing is to tell yourself how important is your energy, your well-being and happiness for you. Mm-hmm. Once you really stand by that, then I think that's going to motivate you to not allow anyone to disturb that. Mm. So if you hold your well-being um, in the highest ranking, just me being happy, then when someone else tries to ruin that, you're going to defend yourself. And not necessarily defend yourself aggressively, but you're just going to be more mindful of how you allow other people to shift your reality or your perspective or your happiness. And so really figuring out what's important for you. Is your happiness important? Yes. So when I'm going to this job and someone may have a bad attitude, I'm going to let that be their bad attitude. I'm not going to absorb it into my energy. I'm not going to let that shift how I feel about myself. I'm not going to let that dictate my day because my happiness is important for me. Mm-hmm. And so I think people need to just, like you said, create that space for themselves to get back to themselves, to remember how powerful and important they are and that their well-being is top priority and that they shouldn't let anyone dictate that or make that lesson. Wow. So you mentioned that um, now the the youngest persons, what's the youngest uh, uh, age that you've worked with? Wow. Wow. Have you ever dealt with any youth and that uh, had issues with, uh, let's say, someone that's bullying them? I have not, um, but I know it's out there. I know my colleagues have, but I have not personally um, mm. dealt with that with any of my, my children. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have that many. I have like, a couple, like two or three, and like the rest are in the age range that I told you about. Okay, okay. right. So even over 18, again, a bully could be someone on a job or, you know, or, you know, just in your life. It could even be a neighbor. And uh, so in situations, again, and I guess that that depends on the situation because it can become a legal issue. But I think um, a question for you that, well, if it's a, a kid, let's say they're under 17 and you're in school, it's a different kind of dynamic how you have to deal with it but if you're talking to a child that's uh let's say what recommendation if they're dealing with a bully someone under 17 so if you're dealing with a bully um 
to, um, that being a parent or a caregiver or any other social support. Mm-hmm. And I think that you should write down your daily affirmations. I don't know if you guys know what affirmations are, but affirmations are basically truths that already exist. You're just speaking them into existence again. So usual affirmations that I am strong, I am beautiful, or um, I am intelligent, and you can switch affirmations to any category you want. But I think it's important to do those affirmations because you want to remind yourself how important you are. Um, sometimes when we deal with bullies, um, they demoralize us or they make us feel bad about who we are, and I think it's important to recognize that who you are is not a bad person or a bad thing. But who you are is a very important thing and a blessing that you're here um, as who you are, accepting who you are and loving who you are unconditionally. Um, and then a third thing I would say is to, and it's hard, but finding compassion for that bully. Because if someone is in a state and they're bullying someone else, they're more hurt than you can ever imagine. And having that space of just compassion for them um, not saying that what they're doing is right, but just saying, you know what, they're doing it because they're hurt, and I hope that they get some help as well. Mm-hmm. And I, <laughs> can I help them? Can I support them in that journey to healing themselves? So I think for me, those are kind of the top three, top three things that I would do. Um, because I know sometimes when people are bullied, it can definitely turn inward, and, and that person who's getting bullied feels like something's wrong with them, and that can lead to suicide ideation or self-harm or anything like that. So not internalizing that hate that someone is giving to you, but finding other ways to protect yourself from that hate, not only physically, but mentally and emotionally. Wow, those are good points. So, you know, so the good, the takeaways, particularly for our adults who might be number one, who's going through something themselves, uh, what would you, uh, whether, you know, it's again, whether it's dealing with a bully or dealing with, you know, just challenges with their own, uh, self-esteem or self-worth, worth, the takeaways would be first is to tune into themselves. Yeah. Okay. And what were the other, the other things that you recommend? So finding social support mm-hmm. to help you, um, that you can feel connected to. And then the third thing was finding compassion for that person who's obviously hurting themselves to be able to mm. um, lash out. Wow. That's really uh, finding compassion, finding social support, and uh, checking with themselves. That's very, very good and very important for us to know. So, you know, with that, I, I want to ask you, uh, do you, you know, we do a segment called She Rise, She Rose. This is uh, to honor a shero, sung or unsung, for her work, her leadership, her courage, her creativity, and having a never give up spirit. Do you have someone in mind that you admire that could be present, past, living, current, or uh, not no longer with us, but left the legacy. Do who would be uh, a shero for you? Well, I, I must say that my mom is a shero for me. Um, What's her name? You got to tell us about her. Okay, her name is Jeanette Wren. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's currently in Alabama right now, but she's California born. Um, but that's where she's living right now. But she's definitely a shero for me because she's always 
been there for me, showed me what it means to have um, hard work and dedication. Um, she had her own business for 20 years. Mm. Despite her successes, she, she definitely found some obstacles and, and went through some things. But despite that, um, she stayed strong and true to herself and always making sure that she strives for the best and no longer accepts anything but the best. She has learned to love herself unconditionally through her um, her triumphs, and I just admire that, that, that so much, that she did not allow that to defeat her or make her give up or think that she's not worth where she's at now, but to know that everything that she's been through is just reinforcing how important she is and how important that she needs to um, demand other people to treat her. <laughs> wow. Now, how, how are you spelling her name, Jeanette? Uh, so it's Jeanette. Jeanette. J-E-E-N-E-T-T-E. Jeanette, and her last name? Wren, W-R-E-N. Wow. Well, so she sounds really beautiful. Do you have brothers and sisters? Oh wow, that's even more special. So, so tell 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 us something that uh, a fond memory of Jeanette that you you always remember and puts a smile on your face about your mother. Um, well, I can remember when we were when I, well, when I was younger. She was younger too. But um, every Sunday after church, we would just kind of do our errands um, and be together and, and shopping and stuff and. She would always just tell me how special I was and how important I was. Mm. Allow one to treat me differently. Um, if I am treated this way by my parents, then I shouldn't expect anything different from society. And I think that's just stuck with me so far and, and so long. And why I have a passion and a purpose to empower other people to help them understand that they get to dictate their world and their experience and their overall health and happiness, and to not allow anyone to take that away from them. Wow, that's awesome. Your mother sounds like definitely more than a shero. She's a queen and a shero. <laughs> definitely. Oh, I love it. I love it. So naturally, she would have a very strong, uh, smart, intelligent daughter. She's got to be really proud of you. That's all she talked about. <laughs> wow. So you guys sound very close. Yeah, we are. Definitely. Is there any saying that you uh, that she likes to say, anything particularly that you can recall that you would quote your mother? You know what? No, she doesn't have a particular quote that, I, that um, comes to mind that she always says. <laughs> okay. But the so the fun, what's the the one most thing that you like about her of all things attributes? That she's loving. Loving. Um, yes. I, I definitely would say that she's loving. Um it's sometimes still a fault with some <laughs> things or can be a fault at some time. Mm-hmm. So, but um she's loving and um she's a reliable. That's what I love about her. Wow, that's wonderful. Wow, I can I can just feel her spirit <laughs> with you saying that. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. Well, Miss um, Sasha Jackson, it's been so wonderful having you. I, I'm going to close, but I want to ask you uh, to be the guest and uh, to 
close on this I believe, and that's five things that you believe. Give us five statements, five things you believe. You got it. I believe that I can impact the world. I believe that you can impact the world in your happiness. I believe that we are entitled to find peace and wellness and gratitude and appreciation. Um, I believe that despite barriers, that you're going to triumph and be successful in all your endeavors. And I believe that the universe has infinite opportunities awaiting for us. We just need to be open to receive them. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. We appreciate you. Sasha Jackson, Jackson, MSWASW, therapist, mental health clinician, and uh, our Shiro, a, a sister extraordinaire. Thank you, Sonia. I definitely appreciate it. Um, I had a great time on the show and, and talking to you and everyone else about mental health and just overall mental wellness. I hope from this show that people got some information and that Oh, absolutely. And again, when you are, uh, when you release your book, would you promise to contact me? Let us know so we can share. And the book again will be called Uh, Plug Into Your Power. Plug Into Your Power. All right. And um, is there any way if you, if someone wants to contact you or follow you, do you have? Any way of being our website? Uh, yeah, so you can always follow me on LinkedIn. Um, just look up my name. I don't know the exact uh, LinkedIn is very difficult about um, their. Uh, oh yeah. But, <laughs> but it's uh, I'm Sasha Jackson, so it's spelled S A S H A J A C K S O N. And then you can also find me on Instagram um, at I underscore amp underscore Sasha Jackson. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much. We certainly appreciate you for joining us on Sister Love. And uh, with that, that's our show. Okay, thank you. Have a wonderful week, everyone. Bye. Bye.